Hello. Oh, Nora, are you home? Hey, Adele, come on in. How are you? You know, it's about time. I think maybe it, you've come this way so many times. It's my turn to come and fly in your direction. Ooh, my haunt. Yes. <laughs> I'm doing well, ghostly as ever. How about you? Well, my old rattling phones are still rattling around like a bag of old rattles. <laughs> At least you weren't killed by a rattlesnake. Kill you oh, twice. No, no, that's a good thing, at least. Well, I suppose the first thing we should do is remind our mortal listeners about who we are and why we're here. Hmm? Hmm, yes, you betcha. I'm Nora Berry. I died when I hanged myself from the rafters of my chicken barn in Petaluma in 1879. My husband and I lost our life savings in a bad investment in the Petaluma woolen mill. We were swindled by some San Francisco hoodlums, and it led to my early demise. Mm, demise. demise. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm Adele Bayless. I drowned in the Petaluma River under mysterious circumstances <laughs> in 1858. Most people say it was suicide, but I may actually have been a victim of an early serial killer here in town. Mysterious. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember the details very well. My husband, Tom Bayless, operated a steamship line from San Francisco to Petaluma in the 1850s and 1860s and built the Pioneer Hotel, one of our town's first hotels. If you're not familiar with Petaluma, we are a town in Sonoma County, about an hour north of San Francisco. <laughs> or back in our time, closer to five or six hours by steamboat and a bit quicker by train. Ooh, at least you had a train connection in the 1870s. In the 1850s, we had to either take the steamboat or spend all day going by horse and wagon on a stagecoach. Hmm. Once a month or so, we inhabit the bodies of some of our beloved predeceased friends to regale you with tales <laughs> about life in the Victorian era on the California frontier and the stories of the deceased community, <laughs> who we are, what we're still doing here, and where you might get the bejesus scared out of you by us. <laughs> we also sometimes have special guest ghosts drop by to tell their stories. Oh, that's right. We had Dr. Christine Remark last week. Oh, and Clara Travis said she would hop on the ghost train from Marysville and Sacramento sometime soon to bring us news from the California gold fields. Oh, I don't know how she does it. Those gold fields, they have some pretty rough characters. A young girl like her living up there with might give me anxiety, I think, for sure. Yes, she does very well in the anxiety part. But, well, <laughs> you know, she's not exact, exactly living anymore. Mm. Now is she? Hmm. Mm. More like continuing her spectral existence among the dirty departed. <laughs> the hmm. dirty, dearly departed. Hmm. That about sums it up. Yeah, well, anyway, she'll drop by on a future episode. Oh, Nora, I just came from the ghost office, and you may be interested to know I've just gotten a ghost card from some of our friends. Oh, yes, who would that be? Okay, the Hatties. Oh, MG. Just to be clear for our pre-deceased listeners, that means, oh, my ghostliness. <laughs> That's right, in the spirit oh. world. It's not just those young whippersnappers who use acronyms. 
L-O-L. I think that must be lookout liver. <laughs> oh, you mean like when you had too much of that Udolfo's Wolf's medicinal schnapps? Oh, can you mm. ever have too much of that? <laughs> so anyway, what did they say? Didn't you put that in your tea? Oh, yes, that was so you did. good. Yes. <laughs> you did. Well, you know, they went on one of those haunted cruises to the South Pacific, right? Spooks at sea. <laughs> right. The ones where you take a ghost ship. I hear they can be a little drafty and wet. Oh, yeah, um, I guess so. Uh, but maybe that depends on the ship. Well, you wouldn't catch me on one of those. I'm not much for travel these days. Plus, all of those buffets with the rotten food and the torn furnishings and busted chandeliers. I know it's in keeping with the whole ghost ship vibe. And the passengers feel right at home, but it just isn't my kind of haunting. No, I'm more of the abandoned Victorian hotel type myself when I'm on vacation. Yes. Well, give me a good old train, a ghost train, or a haunted stagecoach to get around, but I prefer staying around town and walking along the river at night, or even old Lakeville Highway scaring motorists by jumping out in front. Their headlights it's such a riot. <laughs> Headlights. Woo! <laughs> well, Nora, the Hatties and a ghost card from the Sandwich Islands, which is what the living people call Hawaii today. Mm, yum. They took the old steamship, the Georgina, which blew up in the turning basin in 1855, down to San Francisco. My widowed husband, Tom Bayless, always the entrepreneur, added it to his ghostly transport service after he passed in 1867. <laughs> he refurbished the interior and takes it down to the Embarcadero once a month. It still smells a little crispy, but it does the job. Hmm, a little wet. Hmm, crispy, huh? Ooh. Even in the afterlife. He still knows how to make a buck or two, doesn't he? Uh, definitely. Mm. Well, from San Francisco, they hopped aboard the Ajax. You know, that was the first vessel to have a scheduled steamship service between California and the Sandwich Islands. It was a combination sailing and steam-powered vessel and a veteran of the Civil War. Mark Twain, or Samuel Clemens, as we knew him, wrote about his cruise aboard the Ajax in 1866. And he claims to have counted 22 of the 68 passengers vomiting from seasickness at one point. You know how you fix that, right? Mm -mm. If you eat bananas, it's the same going in as it is coming out. Mm. Well, <laughs> see, that's what I'm talking about. An ocean cruise is not for me. <laughs> the Ajax was used to travel all over the Pacific in the late 1860s and 1870s. But in 1880, she disappears from the records. No one, living that is, knew what happened to her. Well, we know she went into service as the first fully ghostified post-mortal pleasure vessel. <laughs> she still operates to this day, which is how the Hatties got to the Sandwich, oof, I mean Hawaiian Islands, and from where they sent the ghost card I've been going on about. Are you ever going to tell me what they said? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I was just about to get to that. They were enjoying their time, and they went to Mr. Clemens' lecture one night. They said it was a hoot, and they both met him on the deck the next morning. Hattie said he was just as delightful in person. Okay, so which Hattie? <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure. It, it's amazing how they are so different and had such different stories, yet they are just like two peas in a pod. They really are two great examples of Victorian women and the roles they played in Petaluma's history. You knew they were in-laws too, didn't you? I did know that. 
In fact, let's tell our audience about each of them. I'll go first with Hattie Hall Weston. She died first and she has somewhat crazy story to tell. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that sounds good. And I'll do um, Hattie Zimmerman Gross. Mm -hmm. Harriet Hattie Hall was born in Bloomfield, California in 1870. Well, for those of you who don't know where that is, Bloomfield is a tiny town on the Bodega Road, northwest of Petaluma, by around 15 miles or so. Hmm. Isn't it strange that no one names their daughters Harriet anymore? I know, it is such a lovely name, and Hattie isn't bad for a nickname. Maybe we'll start a trend. Young folks starting a family out there, think about it. Harriet, it's a great name. But yeah, or what about Nora or Adele? Those are some good names too. When was the last time you met a Nora? <laughs> right. Well, for me, it was 1879, and that was you. But for Adele, there is that singer. So maybe it's making a comeback. Mm -hmm. We can only hope. Anyway, back to the Hatties. Hattie, as that's what they always called her, was the eldest daughter of William Parker Hall and Augusta P. Carey. William was originally from Connecticut, and Augusta was from Quebec. They met and were married in 1866, huh. the same year they moved to Bloomfield. Hattie was born four years later. So Hattie grew up in Bloomfield. Mm -hmm. Her parents started a farm out there growing wheat and hay originally, but they ranched cattle and other livestock as well. Mm -hmm. That's a bit after my time, but I do remember seeing that Sonoma County was a leading producer of wheat on the West Coast in the 1870s and 1880s. That's correct. And Bloomfield was also known for potatoes until the anti-Chinese attacks drove away most of the laborers in the late 1870s. The Wickersham murders were mostly responsible for that. Hmm. Yes, that was a that was a tragedy, huge tragedy. We definitely need to tell that story sometime in great detail. Well, if you lived out in Two Rock, Bloomfield, Bodega, Marshall, or Tomales, these are small towns in the western part of Sonoma and Marin counties along the coast. There was no entertainment, and even worse, no saloons. The boredom was alleviated only if you hitched up the wagon on Saturday morning. Hmm or even Friday afternoon, and took the family into town for social activities. Right, Petaluma had the opera house, mm -hmm. a couple of dance halls, oh, and a lot of saloons. Mm. Saturday night was when you lived it up and hopefully stumbled home in the late evening or early morning, and then you dragged yourself to church services on Sunday. <laughs> Single farmhands often overnighted at one of the numerous hotels that were popping up throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s. Right, the working gals or the ladies in red or the soiled doves, as you might say, made most of their wages on Saturday nights at the hotels and saloons. Hmm. But if you were well off, you built a second house on the west side of town. That's why there are so many Victorian early 20th century houses hmm. in the alphabet streets and north of Western Avenue. Oh, that pattern was even more popular when the chicken ranches started popping up out Magnolia Avenue in the 1910s and 1920s, which used to be the Petaluma Bloomfield Road. Lots of those small houses they call California bungalows are from that time. Well, 
Anyway, Hattie's parents had a house in town at 961 Howard Street. That's opposite the Catholic Church, right? And north of A Street, um, right before Howard turns into 6th Street. It's actually number 7 Howard Street now. All right, so the halls were there only on the weekends. Hmm. At first, yes, but by the late 1890s, they were in Petaluma more than they were in Bloomfield. The Halls had invested in numerous ranch properties and were able to spend more time among the town's social elite. Hattie's mom, Augusta, was a mover and a shaker in the community, and Hattie was her up-and-coming prodigy. Okay, I see. Well, in the 1890s, being among the high society folks meant you had to put on parties and entertain a lot. There are numerous articles in the Argus Courier Society column discussing the success of the parties and events at the Hall's Place on Howard Street. Okay, I guess social media in the 1880s and 1890s meant putting on a party in person. <laughs> That's right. No scrolling through your telephone thingy, majiggy thing to talk to your friends. You actually had to see them in person and you were expected to put up some good entertainment like flowers hors d'oeuvres, music, the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> you wouldn't want to leave out that caboodle. Definitely not. You can't be a caboodleless uncaboodled. Sans caboodle. <laughs> well, Patty had a full social calendar for sure. Even at a young age of 10 and 11, she entertained at events in Bloomfield and Petaluma with songs and recitations. She was definitely groomed to be an extroverted social light. By the age of 17, she was enrolled at Mills Seminary in Oakland. Actually, it was already called Mills College by then. Well, from what I heard, you had to be among the social elite to get into Mills Seminary for young women. I guess the wheat and potato business in Bloomfield was pretty lucrative. No doubt, but I suppose Mills Seminary is where Hattie began pursuing her love of art. Mm. She became a talented artist and her paintings were demand among the Petaluma Society said. But around 1892, when she was 22 years old, she married Harry McCurdy Weston. Hmm. Harry was a local boy from Petaluma, and their families were actually neighbors. The Westons lived at 967 Howard in that cute house with the arched windows and the slopey roof. It's number one Howard Street now, but Harry was nearly 10 years older than Hattie. Okay, that wasn't unusual for the time. Many older men sought out younger wives, my husband included. Well, that's true. Harry was the son of H.L. Weston, one of the early owner editors of the Petaluma Argus, and later a politician and his wife, Kitty. <laughs> Here, Kitty. <laughs> as a youth, Harry worked as a typesetter for the Argus Courier. He then worked for a few years at a newspaper in Portland, but he eventually came back home to the Argus Courier and then onto a job as clerk in the post office and became deputy postmaster. But the same year that he married Hattie, he began losing his eyesight. Oh, what caused that? Hmm. You know, I'm not exactly sure, but trachoma was common during that period. That's a bacterial infection that causes a roughening of the inner eyelid, which eventually causes a breakdown of the cornea and blindness. Ugh. Or pink eye was pretty common too, also called conjunctivitis. Hmm. That's a condition caused by both viral and bacterial infections. That could have been 
the cause as well. Ugh, it doesn't sound very pleasant. Definitely not. But it was particularly hard for Harry to do his job. If he was going blind, he and Hattie moved into his parents' house initially. Yes. The expectations were that he would move out as soon as they could afford it. Both of them. But things did not go as planned. Yeah. And Harry was unable to do any of the work that he was trained in because he couldn't see. Wow. That must have been so difficult for Hattie. Yes, their child, Hal Weston, was born in 1893. And Hattie had to raise him while Harry didn't contribute much to their household. Eventually, Harry grew distant and was very angry all the time. He tried opening a grocery store but that failed after a short time. Sometime around the 1903, Hattie moved back in with her parents. She began offering classes in painting and wood burning and even began learning the millinery making hats. She also began selling Christmas paintings and decorations. Oh, well, she had to make ends meet somehow. Mm-hmm. In 1904, she sued for divorce on grounds of desertion and ill treatment by his family, hmm. his parents, I suppose, but the divorce was denied until she could amend it to state that he failed to provide a suitable home for his family, even though he was able to do so. So it was granted to her later that same year, along with the custody of their son. Okay, so she moved back in with her parents, but that was only next door, right next door. Hmm. <laughs> yes, she also moved back into the social media of the time pretty quickly. Here is a newspaper article from Petaluma Daily Morning Courier, February 27, 1905. The masquerade given Saturday night at the Unique was by Professor J. Kenny. Many of the costumes worn were pretty and unique. An immense throng gathered at the hall, and besides maskers, there were a number of spectators. The music was furnished by Mrs. Charles Meyer over... Forty couples took part in the Grand March. After midnight, the maskers removed their masks and prizes were awarded. The judges were Thomas Denny, Mrs. Hattie Weston, Mrs. Jules Gamage, Miss Edith Lewis, and Mr. Davenport. It was four o'clock Sunday morning when the party broke up. Well, that sounds like a major shindig. Sure I mean, the does. grand march for us—it's the grand drift. This is the back of those. Yes. And they haunt them. <laughs> Despite the venue, it was not exactly unique either. Those parties were pretty frequent and notorious for the time. Although she continued hosting parties for several years, Hattie was covering up some major depression. Mm, hysteria. Oh, yes. It all came to a head in February 1907. Let me read the sum of the main article from the Petaluma Argus Courier, February 11th of that year. Okay. The tragic death of Mrs. Hattie Weston, the quiet stillness of the beautiful Sabbath, was rent by an awful tragedy which has shocked the entire community and cast into gloom the many friends of the respected pioneer family whose eldest daughter lies still in death, her life cut off in its prime by a deadly bullet erected by her own hand. Yeah. Mrs. Hattie Hall Weston, a leader in social society, prominent not only here, but in San Francisco and elsewhere, apparently light-hearted and happy, 
accomplished and educated, and an artist of unusual talent, lies still in death at the home of her parents, Mr. and Mrs. W.P. Hall, on Howard Street. A suicide. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. No real motives for the deed are known to the world as yet, although many rumors probably unfounded fill the air. Deceased left a letter stating that she was tired of life, had nothing to live for, and would end it all. She asked to be forgiven for her act and for causing people trouble. Whoa, I did not see that coming. I wonder <laughs> if there was foul play. Right? Could be. Mm -hmm. Well, no one did, apparently. Here are some more details. Mrs. Weston was shopping on Saturday. Seemed in the best of spirits. Sunday morning, she arose as usual, ate breakfast, and assisted with the household work. Her father was last to speak to her. She assisted him on with his overcoat before he started for town. A few minutes later, she went into the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Fastened the door. Mm-hmm. And turned on the gas. She then took a 32 caliber revolver, which has always been in the house, and placing the weapon to her right temple, sent a bullet through her head. Oh. No one heard the pistol report. Mm -hmm. The odor of gas coming from the bathroom aroused Mrs. Hall. The mother broke into the door and found her daughter dead with the revolver still in her right hand. No one heard the shots. Oh. How could that be? Pistol report, and, and no one suspected she was depressed? Yeah, huh. right? Several of her friends knew she had spells of melancholy. Okay. Naturally. <laughs> but she was good at hiding it, especially from her family. The twist is what came a few days later. <laughs> the San Francisco Examiner, William Randolph, her sensationalist newspaper, published an expose claiming that the letter had he left behind named Thomas Denny as the reason for she committed suicide. Okay, is that the same Thomas Denny that was co-judge at the masquerade ball two years earlier? One and the same. He was an actual judge in real life too, and he had just accepted a post in Santa Rosa and was planning on moving away from Petaluma. Oh. Yet the examiner claimed that Patty was in love with Thomas Denny and that he did not return her affections. So she killed herself. The examiner quoted her letter saying that, may God be Tom Denny's judge and have mercy on his soul for his cruelty. Wow, so much drama. Exactly. <sighs> but that same day, the Petaluma Morning Courier published a short article denying the examiner's story, saying it was speculative guesswork at best. Tom Denny, claimed that he had no knowledge of any romantic longings on her part and that he had never made overtures towards her. <laughs> I remember when she arrived in the spectral waiting room, she was so distraught when we greeted her. <laughs> I remember that too. Back then we were doing our community service as greeters. I did, I definitely did enjoy helping people enter the afterlife, but it could be a little overwhelming yeah i don't remember her mentioning anything about a tom denny though only about how much she was worried about what was going to happen to her boy 
She must have cried for hours. She was holding in years of emotional, emotional turmoil. But then I think she wanted to be a greeter with us. Mm, yes. Social gal. Yes. Get out there. Get working again. Well, but she did pull herself together and started going back to check on her son every so often. Mm, yeah. That's where Hattie Zimmerman Gross comes into this story. And I'll tell you a little bit about her life. She was born in Tamales in 1863. So she was actually seven years older than Hattie Hall Weston, and she wasn't a Harriet. She was actually Frances Henrietta Zimmerman, so a different version of Hattie as a nickname. Her parents were George and Louisa Zimmerman, who had come to Sonoma County in 1857. But by 1864, the Zimmermans moved to Petaluma and George was operating livestock yards on D Street. Hmm, on D Street. Well, that's some pretty prime real estate today. That's right. But unlike Hattie Hall, she was not very much into the social media of the day. She almost never appeared in the society columns as a young lady. And unlike Hattie Hall, who was a social butterfly. <laughs> I'm more of a social moth myself, <laughs> drawn to the light, but not very fancy. <laughs> Well, don't count Hattie Zimmerman out, though. She was an avid reader and knew more about the history of Sonoma County than most people in her time. And in 1886, she married Louis L. Gross when she was 23. Originally from Chemnitz, Germany, he was a skilled mechanic and draftsman who came to Petaluma in 1882, where he started an architectural business, doing tinning and cornice work on our lovely iron fronts. Then he opened a plumbing and hardware store on Main Street and began investing in property all over town. And by the early 1900s, the Gross family owned the Centennial Block, Gross Hall, livery stables on Main and Kentucky Street, and the Yosemite Hotel. Hmm, the Yosemite Hotel was over on Washington Street on the east side of the river. Yeah, I mean, she was a real estate mogul, mogul. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Lewis and Hattie had two daughters, Ruby, born in 1887, and Elzada, or Elsa, as she was called, born in 1896. Lewis passed away, though, in 1908, only at the age of 50 years old, after an operation, leaving the management of all of his properties to Hattie. Operations in 1908. Risky business. Well, Plus, you know, she had all the property on D Street left to her by her father, right? That's right. And he passed away in 1905, leaving her a portion of his $20,000 estate, which is, I think, wow. about 700000 in value today. Wow. But I don't believe that included all of the real estate, according to the newspaper. Well, I know she stepped up to become one of the town's most important landladies and business women. Mm -hmm. She was particularly involved in the Centennial Building which Lewis had renamed to the Gross Building after he bought it. Today, it's known as the Landmark Building. She walked into town every day from her house on D Street just to make sure she knew what was going on. Hattie also redesigned the facade of the building in 1911 in the Mission Revival style. And then she hired the architect, Brainerd Jones, to design another building to take the place of the livery stable in the back. And that was in 1928. Mm-hmm, yes. So, the building has gross written on the front of it. Sure does. And there's so many buildings in town that are have the names of the men who built those buildings. Well, this building has the name of the woman who built that building. It's about time, yeah, right? Yeah, kind of like that. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, by then automobiles were becoming popular and people stopped riding horses into town. Ironically, though, I do know that her brother Charles Zimmerman and his wife were killed in a horrific car accident oh. in Salinas in 1909. Oh. Hattie was very distraught at the news coming only a year after losing Lewis. Oh, so sad. Mm. Maybe so much tragedy is why she preferred to lead a fairly quiet life, not engaging much in public. Unlike Hattie, though, her daughter Ruby was constantly in society columns, visiting San Francisco or other places. She became a renowned actress around town, taking the lead in numerous plays during the 1900s or during the aughts, as those Edwardian ghosts, Gen E, like to say. She was married to George Riley in 1910 at the age of 23, but then divorced him in 1913 on the very same grounds as Hattie Hall Weston divorced her husband. Hmm, were they in cahoots? <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, well, she got married again this time to Lee A. Wilson, only about a year and a half later, and they moved to San Francisco right after. But the real connection to Hattie Hall is through her daughter, the other daughter, Elsa. By 1915, Elsa was frequently seen in the company of one Dr. Hall Weston, Hattie Hall Weston's son, who was only 13 or 14 when she passed, had gone to Berkeley and became a licensed dentist. In 1917, during World War I, Dr. Hall Weston entered the Army Dentistry Service and was stationed at Camp Kearney near San Diego. He returned to Petaluma in 1918 on a furlough and married Elsa in San Francisco before he had to return to camp. When he came back for good in 1919, he opened a dental practice. Ah, how lovely. Hattie Weston told me that she was so proud of her son and all his accomplishments, but especially for finding Elsa. She was there during their wedding. She made the trip down by ghost train. Yeah, and Hattie Gross was delighted as well. She was very fond of the young man, and they visited her frequently on D Street. Her eldest daughter, Ruby, passed away suddenly in February of 1938, and Hattie died only six months later of an apparent heart attack. Paul Weston found her having passed away in bed peacefully. She had been having heart issues for some time, I think. Hmm. Not surprisingly, Hattie Hall Weston was there to greet her at the Spectral <laughs> Welcome Center. Although they never met in life, they were so delighted to meet in death. Hattie Gross had heard so much about the other Hattie from her son, and they quickly became as close as sisters. Oh, Nora, that reminds me of when you met me in the Spectral Waiting uh, Center. I think this Sandwich Island trip is the third or fourth ghostly vacation they've gone on together, isn't it? Mm, I think so. They went to Yosemite together in the early 1950s, I believe. Then they went to New York. Let me tell you, Hattie Hall loved that trip. Carnegie Hall, Broadway, it was right <laughs> up her alley. Their other trip was to the Grand Canyon a few years back. They did a road trip with a ghost car mm -hmm. for that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Hall and Elsa joined them for that, I think. And Hall did love those big roadsters. Mm, ghosters, roasters, yes, okay. <laughs> Horseless carriages. You got it. Well, <laughs> nowadays when the Hatties aren't on vacation, they can sometimes be seen around town. Hattie Hall is mostly seen around her old home on Howard Street, especially 
if there is a party going on. But other times, one might see her sitting quietly by the grave in the Bloomfield Cemetery. Oh, Hattie Gross usually makes herself known by causing mischief in the landmark building, especially upstairs where the German Druids Hall used to be. But people have also spotted her on quiet evenings walking home to D Street on D Street from downtown. You know, there's nothing like a quiet stroll in the evenings to warm the cold heart of the dearly departed. Especially if you can scare a few mortals along the way. That's for sure. So fun. So fun. Oh, yes. Well, anyway, I guess we should be wrapping up around now. What does RIP stand for, Adele? Rest in Petaluma. <laughs> Hey, you can find us on Instagram at Petaluminaries. Email us your favorite stories to petaluminaries at gmail.com. This is a presentation by the Petaluminaries production featuring Sky Bailey, inhabited by Adele Bayless, and Binky Thorson, inhabited by Nora Berry. Audio recording by Rio Helmy, edited by Tom Whitley. Copyright 2023. This podcast depicts life in the 19th century. If this is for you, have a listen. Recorded at Way Out West Studios. Wow. Grab your coat and, and grab, grab your hat. hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. <laughs> Those working gals. Oh, I think one might be oh, calling you. Yeah, we <laughs> Maybe that's uh, Jane Doe. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah, that uh, Madam down on C Street. Nice. Yes. Oh. For our flesh and blood listeners, we interrupt this podcast for a runaway pig. Mm, gotta watch out for those <laughs> runaway hogs. <laughs> and it's not even a wild hog. <laughs> oh, man.